With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to Two Footed Podcast on Thursday, the 7th of October, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. It's a virtual privacy network which allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from, while also keeping your data safe. Check out LibertyShield.com and use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do remember to check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops on Etsy. Just download the Etsy app to your phone and look up EPL Index and Anfield Index. Right, folks. It's a big day for Newcastle Football Club. The Saudi Arabian government have dropped their blocking of being sport in Saudi Arabia, which removes the piracy issue, which had previously stopped the Saudi Arabian-backed buyout of Newcastle United. So the whole thing was about Saudi Arabians didn't want being sport being shown in their country, but they were illegally showing it anyway. So you being weren't making any money, but the games were getting shown anyway. And being sport obviously are a long time partner now of the Premier League, and they've got a lot of money invested in the Premier League, and they were the ones that put forward the main opposition. And that's what stopped the deal for the better part of a year now. But that has now been resolved, and in the last 24 hours, things have moved very, very quickly to the point where it appears that this takeover could take place today. All parties are confident that this deal will go through. They worked through the night, and they're pushing to get it announced today. All sources suggest this is a done deal. It's just a matter of time. For Newcastle, it's obviously, it means two things. Number one, Steve Steve Bruce, well, Mike Ashley, more to the point, will be gone. Steve Bruce will get sacked. That's kind of by the by. Mike Ashley will be gone. And their club will be free from the reign of misery that he has overseen on Tyneside. Now, 
he has owned the club since 2007. So we're looking at 14 years of inept ownership by this man. We've seen them go go down, come up, go down, come up, sell players, buy bad players, appoint bad managers, not sign anybody, run the best manager they've maybe ever had in Benitez out the door. All the while creating a distance between the club and the fans that you hate to see at any club, but in particular a club like Newcastle, where the fans really are the lifeblood of the club. The first move that the new owners are going to have to do is to open dialogue with those fans and try and bridge that gap, bring those fans back in. I've seen so many Newcastle fans over the last six months just say they're done. They don't even watch anymore. They don't follow the team anymore. They're just done with football. There's a massive fan base that back Newcastle. Some of it is dormant. Some of it is distant. Some of it is still active, but not necessarily committed. And then you have those that are still going every game, singing every game, calling for the owner to go. You've got to unite those back into one group. There's been multiple arguments between sets of supporters at Newcastle. Ashley this, Bruce that. All of that needs to go and one consistent message needs to be put out to the fans to bring them all back. You've got a massive stadium there. A stadium in need of repair, I will say. But a massive stadium there with potential that you can fill every single game. If the vibe around the club is positive, Newcastle fans will come in their droves. Thousands upon thousands of them will descend on St. James's Park every single home game and fill that place and create an atmosphere like you won't really see in many of the places around Europe. It is an incredible thing when St. James's Park is in full voice. It is one of the best places to watch a game of football anywhere. But they've got to get the fans on board. Now, there's obviously going to be some major questions asked about Saudi Arabia, human rights. Those things need to be addressed. And they need to be addressed head on. They can't just be sugar-coated. They can't be pushed aside. You can't pretend they don't exist. It's bad enough that the other country, that the other countries that own clubs in England and France pretend that they don't exist in their country. You've got to be the one that steps forward and says, yes, we have issues, and here's what we're doing. But you've also got to try and separate club from state and make it seem that you are a separate entity. I think Newcastle need a clear out top to bottom. I think you've got to go in strong. A, a big time CEO doesn't have to be from within the football world. 
I would look outside the football world, find somebody who's been very, very successful at running businesses, get them in. Then I think what you want is it's not a title often used in football, but a president of football operations. Mike Gordon is basically that at Liverpool. And I think I think everybody who is being honest with themselves would agree Liverpool are probably the best run club in England in terms of structure. Forget finance. Finance comes from the ownership. In terms of structure, day-to-day, medical, recruitment, analytics, Liverpool are streets ahead of pretty much everybody. Now, the director of football will oversee the football side of things, but I also think you need the medical side of things. You've got to have somebody who's over the director of football, the director of medicine, and across the board, director of recruitment, director of the academy. You've got to have somebody above them. I think you've got to go and find the right person. Go big on that role. You've got to get the right director of football. You've got to get the right head of recruitment. You've got to get your department heads all in order. Before you buy a single player, put your structure in place. Before you even, like, you can sack Steve Bruce. Do not appoint a manager until you've got your structure in place. Get rid of Bruce, put a caretaker in, fine. But until you get your structure in place, do not jump, unless you can get Antonio Conte, do not jump at just the shiny manager that you think you can get. Put your structure in place. Build your club first, then build your team. Get your academy in order. Get your training ground in order. Invest in your stadium. Investing in your team, your squad, is quite a way down the list of what you need to do. You've got to build the club up first. On both sides, football and business. Then you've got to address things like the stadium, the issues at the stadium. You've got to buy back the land that Ashley sold so that you can extend the stadium if need be. You've got to upgrade your training ground. You've got to upgrade your academy. You've got to pump money into those things. You will see returns on that. Upgrade your medical staff. Go out and buy an analytics company. Don't bother forming an in-house one. Liverpool didn't bother. They just went and bought one. That's how they ended up with Dr. Ian Graham and co. They just went and bought a company. Do that. You've got all the money in the world. Go and buy StatsBomb. Ted will sell. Go on off from 50 million and see what he says. The drop in the ocean to you. But you get him and his team on board. That is That would be game changing. You would have instant access to the best bespoke analytics in world football. Go and buy Statsbomb or somebody like Statsbomb. Doesn't have to necessarily be Statsbomb. But go and buy an analytics company that are already formed, already in place, already have their own metrics. Bring them in, get them in-house. Use them for recruitment and evaluation. You're going to have to rebuild some relations with other Premier League clubs as well because there's been a lot of bitterness, obviously, 
uh, over the last couple of years from from Ashley towards the others. And obviously, the other clubs weren't necessarily keen on you bringing in or you coming into the league because you bring all that money. But I do think there's a real path to Newcastle doing this properly. City, I would say, did it properly, though they did spend badly in those early years. They eventually figured it out once they got their their ducks in a row and got their structure in place. And you see now what they've done. The Etihad campus is remarkable. They've invested hugely in the local community. You're in awe of what City did. What, what City have done is incredible. And, and the way they've set up the City football group, that's something you can do. That is something you can do. You can look to buy a club in Austria, a club in France, a club in Portugal, a club in Brazil maybe, a club in Argentina. Look at the footballing hotspots around the world. Look at Africa in particular. Go and set yourself up in Africa. Make yourself a real pipeline for all that talent in Africa. The same in South America. Find hotspots, buy clubs, create academies, bring players in, get them into your pipeline. Have a Newcastle mandate. Have a Newcastle mantra. Know what you want your players, your club to be from the day they enter to the day they leave. Regardless of whether they're with Newcastle United or... Mumbai United, whoever, whatever country you're in, wherever you're bringing the talent from, Lagos United, wherever you're bringing the talent from, have them understand that it is one club, one vision and one way, and that the end goal for every single one of them is to play for Newcastle United Football Club in that first team. Now, they will face a slight issue in terms of recruitment in that I don't know how attractive... Newcastle's a great city. Let me be very clear on that. It is a great city. But I don't know how attractive a proposition it is to ask players from Spain, Portugal, Brazil, Argentina, wherever, to move to Newcastle. We've seen, obviously, in the past, we've seen certain players go there. And the likes of Esprit didn't really settle, but he's a lunatic anyway. But... The reason it worked for Chelsea with Roman's money is Chelsea's in London. And it's in the nicest part of London. Well, nicest is. It's in the poshest part of London. So players can live in Knightsbridge. They can live the high life, you know, London, glamour, glitz, whatever. Manchester is, I would say, the second best city in England. For anything you might want, I think Manchester will have it. And we often hear of, you know, players from abroad, their wives don't want to live in this city, don't want to live in that city. They want access to this, they want access to that. Manchester has it all. Your wife wants access to some of the best shopping anywhere in Europe. Manchester has some of the best shopping in Europe. You know, you want a great dining sphere. Manchester's got great restaurants. You want culture. Manchester has culture. You want music. Manchester has music. You want art, Manchester has art. Might not always have it to the level of London, but it has it. Manchester's a great place to live. So, Chelsea was London, City is Manchester. Newcastle's not quite on that level. And by not quite, I mean it's, it's a long way short. 
the weather's also worse. It's a lot colder in Newcastle than it is in London, for example. No doubt we will hear, you know, you give it 10 years, Newcastle have won a couple of league titles, and we'll hear all the, the nonsense about, you know, they had no history and you know, all these plastic fans and, and all this kind of stuff. Now, all of that has obviously been heavily leveled at Chelsea uh, since Roman took over. They hadn't had huge success, let's say, before Roman. One league title, a couple of second divisions. Uh, they'd won three FA Cups. They'd won two league cups. They'd won a cup winners, uh, two cup winners cup. That was kind of where they were before Roman, and obviously now we, you know, we see all the, the different things they've won, and they, he's transformed the club. But there's obviously that the, you've got no history, and they didn't have a huge amount of success in their history. City had two league titles, um, I think seven Division Two titles or championship as it is now um but they had won four FA cups and they'd won a couple of league cups as well they'd also like uh with um Chelsea they'd won a cup winners cup they won theirs back with Lee Bell and Summerby Newcastle have success in their past they've won four league titles they've won four F- five uh, sorry six FA cups So they have won things. Now, it's a long time since they did win anything. They haven't won anything since 1955, other than the Intercity Fairs Cup, which I refuse to acknowledge as a real thing. Um, So Newcastle don't have great modern success, but they do have historic success. They do have history, as did Chelsea, as did City. It will largely be disregarded. I'm warning Newcastle fans now. You are going to be faced with... Claims of no history, plastic fans, etc., etc. Don't worry, though. Most sensible people who aren't 14 and on Twitter acknowledge the fact that you have a big fan base. You are a huge regional club. You're not a big international brand. The aim will be now to build you into that. But you are a big regional club. You're a bigger regional club than Manchester City would have been before they got their money. You're a bigger club than than City were before they got their money. Um, you've got a big fan base. That fan base is going to expand. You're going to get a lot of new fans. And that's good and bad. It's good because it will drive more money into the club. It's bad because there will be the element. You know, you, you see it with Chelsea fans and City fans. They, they have one bad season. This is a dying club. You're morons. You're morons. Like, when Lampard took over and made Chelsea worse, I saw Chelsea fans say, Frank took over a dying club. You finished third and won the Europa League. You're going to get that entitled bunch who won't have known the era without success, won't have known the years of heartache, won't have known relegation, won't have known throwing away a title as you did under Keegan. They won't have been through that. They'll have only come along because you've had success. All they'll have experienced is success. And you just have to keep them in line. This story will develop over the next couple of days. So we're going to have a lot more on it. Hopefully by tomorrow, 
we have more clarity. We can talk about it a bit more. But for Newcastle fans, it is time to get moderately excited. Moderately excited. I wouldn't go overboard until it's done, until it's signed, and until intentions are clear. But the Mike Ashley era and the Steve Bruce, I don't even know what to describe it. The Steve Bruce experiment. Uh, They're coming to an end. And those are things that should fill you with joy. I'm going to take an early break here. When we come back, we'll run through the questions for today. See you in a minute. Right, welcome back. So it is questions day today, and we'll jump straight in. Gary M, LFC1980, says, How would 1987 to 1991 John Barnes do today? He was scoring and assisting ridiculous numbers as a left winger in a 4-4-2 while getting booted and abused. Uh, This is obviously in response to me saying that Messi and Ronaldo wouldn't have put together the same goal-scoring numbers in the 80s and 90s. And I think John Barnes today would probably be a £200 million player. Um, With the rules today that dictate that you can't really touch the opposition, with the invention, I suppose, of inverted wingers imagine John Barnes playing on the right of a front three built like Hulk with the technical ability that is not matched by many today imagine if you could cross Hulk and Leroy Sané and take the best of both you'd basically have a player that would be about 90% as good as John Barnes I think John Barnes if he played today would be a top top three player in the world, maybe top two. I think he'd be more, far more highly regarded and he'd have gotten a lot more exposure because of the Champions League. John Barnes would score comfortably 20 goals a season and probably get a similar number of assists. John Barnes would absolutely tear the modern game apart. Um, we've got a bunch of questions from the Anfield Index Discord. So um, let me go through these and see if we can get through as many as possible. Um, AMK2889, how much better was Salah's goal over the weekend compared to his Puskas winning goal? I imagine he is the front runner for that award right now as well as the Ballon d'Or. I think he has to be considered the, um, the front runner for the Puskas award. That goal he scored against City was... It was ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And the goal he scored was against, that he won the award for was against Everton, which was a good goal, a very good goal, but not nearly as good as this one. Like, his goal against Spurs was better than this one. This was absolutely breathtaking in, in every way, and I, I do think he has to be considered right now the frontrunner for that. In terms of the Ballon d'Or, I do think Lewandowski right now is the front runner for it because he got robbed of it last year. He he should have won it last year. I think they will give it to him this year because he has been great. I think they'll go Lewandowski as the uh, Ballon d'Or this year. Uh, have a question for Dave. I know it might sound a bit FIFA-like, but the position Harvey and Henderson have taken up resembling more of a winger than that of a third midfielder. Is there an argument to play Mane in that role 
linking with Salah, playing Bobby through the centre and Jota on the left. Mane helps out Robertson. I mean, if you did it with Mane, you are committing to more of a 4-4-2. I know that in possession, Liverpool are playing more of a 4-4-2 these days, but it's the out-of-possession shape. Now, look, Sadio does a lot of good defensive work, but do you really want him spending his days getting, you know, having to tackle midfielders and chase back and help the fullback as much? I know he helps Robbo a ton, but... I don't. I don't think you could do it with Sadio. I think you could do it if you were to commit to we're four four two, and our midfield is a double pivot. Sadio's wide right, Jota's wide left. The two boys are through the middle, and we're going to be a four four two team. Then yes, as the current team is constructed, no, I don't think it would work. I don't think he's got. I don't think he's got the positional discipline to play in a midfield three off the ball defensively. So. No, I don't think that one would work. Uh, DeLangster, Michael Edwards has secretly, secretly regenerated, oh, sorry, secretly created a regeneration midfield, which enables him to completely regenerate any player in history from the age of five and inserting into the academy. Upon, upon regeneration, this five-year-old signs a lifetime contract to Liverpool and spends their entire career with the club. However, Edwards is given an ultimatum. He can only use this machine once and destroy it for the good of mankind. He has given five approved names from John Henry to approve for this regeneration. Zidane, Hullet, Iniesta, Ronaldinho, David Silva, who should he choose? Take into account this player will have all the ability of the player chosen and spend their career at Liverpool. It is rude, Hullet. For, for Liverpool, under Jurgen Klopp, look, Zidane is the best of the five players named. I would say Iniesta probably second, Ronaldinho third, Hullet fourth, and David Silva fifth. But I do think, from a fit perspective, I think Ruud Hullet under Jurgen Klopp as that right-sided number eight would be absolutely ridiculous. Zidane, Zidane would require a change of shape. Now, he would warrant a change of shape. Let's not pretend he wasn't incredible, but... Just for the current team, I think you go Rude Hullet. I think as a, he is maybe the greatest athlete to ever play the game prior to Cristiano coming along. And he may even have been more naturally athletically gifted than Cristiano. You're talking about a guy that could pick the ball up and do anything he wanted. Like, I remember watching him play. He picked the ball up on kind of the inside left channel. He'd have sent it back in a fullback, probably 15 yards from him, and a big old bunch of space in behind. And he was running at them, and he clearly just decided, I can just run past them. And he just lifted the ball over the top of them. They turned immediately. And he made up 10 yards, passed them out, and beat them to the ball with ease. Like, he never looked like he was even sprinting. He just glided across the ground. He had incredible versatility. We saw him later in his career play as a central midfielder, a holding midfielder, and a sweeper. He was super intelligent. But in his early career as that attacking midfielder with that really rare combination of pace, power, and technical ability that he had, Ruud Hullet was a once-off. And the two players I always look at and kind of think, imagine what they would be on, like under Klopp are Ruud Hullet 
and Frank Reichard. Because Reichard was similarly athletically gifted, but he was like the defensive side. It was almost like they took one perfect player who could play any position at a 9 out of 10 level, and they split them in half, and Hullet was the attacking side. Could play wide in midfield, attacking midfield, centre midfield, or up front, or as the, the 10. And Reichardt could play centre midfield, holding midfield, full back and centre back and sweeper. And again, do it at such a high level. So of the five you've listed, even though Zidane is my favourite of the five, I would say under Klopp, it's Ruud Hullet. I, I think he was just phenomenal. Iniesta gives you the longest prime. Zidane, remember, was quite a late bloomer. Didn't really explode into the, you know, the general football conscience until he was at Juventus. At Bordeaux, he went a little bit under the radar. He was a little bit later making his debut for France. Ronaldinho, incredible peak, but very short-lived. Silva, I think, is just the fifth on the list. But I, I will go Ruud Hullet. Unlike Zidane and Ronaldinho, Hullet was never the best player in the world, but he was played in the same era as Maradona. And I mean, there is a real argument to be made that when Maradona fell off after the World Cup in 90, that it was Hullet who was the best guy, 91-92. I would go Michael Laudrup, but a lot of people would say Ruud Hullet. So you can argue that he was the best player in the world for a couple of years. I don't think Iniesta has that case because obviously Messi... Um, but I do think there was a couple of years where he was better than Ronald, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. Ronaldinho absolutely was the best player in the world. I'm not sure David Silva was even the best player in the Premier League at any point, as wonderful as he was. Um, but yeah, I'll go Ruud Hullet. Um, AMK2889, would you rather win one World Cup or a Champions League and a Continental Cup such as a Copa America uh, European Championships, Gold Cup, etc. Also, what trophy cabinet would you pick as your own? Can be player or manager. Right. The World Cup is the most special event in football and they're going to ruin it if they make it every two years. So winning one of them is really, really special. But I think if you can win a Champions League and either a Copa America or a, a European Championships, you're doing it at both levels, club and international. So I think there's something to be said for that. Because I like more trophies, I would probably go for that to win a, a Champions League and a, a World Club or a, a Champions League and a Copa America or, or a European Championships. I'd probably go for that because it's more success. But the World Cup is real special. Like if you're the captain, I think you want to win the World Cup because you want to lift that trophy. That is the most iconic trophy in football. And the the pictures of those captains lifting those trophies, Dunga, Deschamps, Cafu, like those things really stand out. Those pictures are absolutely iconic. So, you know, even the old Jules Rimet trophy, like with Bobby Moore lifting, those things stand out, those moments. I think as captain, I think you'd rather win the World Cup because I think that's a moment in time that's frozen and is, is never forgotten. Whereas 
I think as a player, I think you might prefer the other ones. I could be wrong, but that's that's where I'd look. Um, whose trophy cabinet would you pick as your own? Can be any player or manager. I think it's hard to look past Paolo Maldini. Um, being completely honest, I've always sort of looked at his collection of silverware and thought that's incredible. Like he won seven Serie A titles during the 20 year period where Serie A is the number one league in the world, where it's the greatest league we've ever seen from 86 to 06. High, high, bookended by Heisel before it and Calciopoli after it. He won seven of those. That's incredible. He won five Champions Leagues as well. Now, he didn't have the success at international level. Uh, World Cup runner-up, World Cup third place, European Championship third place. That's unfortunate. But from a club point of view, his is unreal. You'd look at Iniesta, you'd look at Xavi. Um, because they did obviously both. Maybe Iniesta, maybe Iniesta. If we're... Yeah, I, I, you know what? I'd go Iniesta because what's he got? Nine La Liga titles, um, six Copa del Reyes, four Champions Leagues, three Club World Cups, two European Super Cups. He won the UEFA under 18, under 16 under, and under 19 championships with Spain. He won a World Cup. He won two European championships. Yeah, do you know what? I'll go Andreas Iniesta. I don't think it gets much better than what he what he accomplished. Like that is that is phenomenal to have won all of that, and obviously to do it at the level that he did it as well with his performance. Um, yeah, I mean, incredible, absolutely incredible, and obviously, you know, even since moving to Japan, he's won an Emperor's Cup and a Japanese Super Cup. Now, the, the Japanese Super Cup sounds like one of those pre-season friendly type things like the Community Shield. Um, but the Emperor's Cup, it's the Japanese FA Cup, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, I'll, I'll take that one. Yeah. So I'll go Andreas Iniesta. I'll go Andreas Iniesta. What, what a player, though. Like, if you couldn't enjoy him playing, football just wasn't for you at all. Um, and, yeah, so he, he has. He's overtaken Maldini, who was always my go-to on that question. Um Right, uh, Ali, which managers do you see in dangers of getting the sack? Is Brendan Rodgers number one? No, I mean, Steve Bruce is number one. There can be no argument that Steve Bruce is about to lose his job with everything that we know that's going on in Newcastle. So Steve Bruce will be number one. I think Claudio Ranieri, new to the job, is probably number two because Watford will change manager at a moment's notice. Um after that I think I think Brendan Arteta and Ollie are probably in a group where if things continue to go poorly the pressure will mount. I don't think Norwich will move on from Farka. I could be wrong if it gets embarrassing it could be wrong. Um there's no chance Burnley will sack Dyche. Southampton and Hasselhutl, there's a little bit of potential there. Seven games without a win. You know, they, they're probably he's probably ahead of Brendan. Guy mentions Nuno, and yeah, I mean you could if if it goes badly, if they lose three in a row again, 
you could definitely see them making a change. So, in truth, it's probably Steve Bruce, Ranieri, then Nuno and Ralph, and then that other three. Um, I think that's probably it. You know, Tuchel's fine, Klopp is fine, Pep's fine, Rafa's doing a great job, Potter's doing a great job, uh, Frank is doing a great job, Moyes is, is safe as houses. Dean Smith... Come the end of the season, it'll be interesting to see. I think he's under a bit of pressure this year to challenge for Europe. Uh, Bruno Lage, I mean, as long as it, he doesn't have a, a, a catastrophic collapse, I think he'll be fine. Vieira the same. Uh, Bielsa could get them relegated, and I think they, they would refuse to sack him. They'd insist he stays. So, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's those that I've mentioned. I think that's probably where we are right now. But it's, it's still early days. Uh, JC Tyrone, can you compare Mo's contract situation with Stevie's back in 2005 when he almost went to Chelsea? I I don't think you can, and here's why. We won a Champions League in 2005, but we finished fifth in the league. So regard, nobody believes that we were the best team in Europe that season. We just weren't. We were fifth best in England, and the only one you could make an argument that we were better than was Everton. So. This Liverpool team, there's been a real argument to make that over the last three years, not last season, obviously, but this season so far, and the two prior to that, we were the best team in Europe. We were definitely the best team in England. Even the season we finished second to City by one point, we were the best team in England. We were the best team in Europe. The following season, obviously, we run away with the league, and our lack of depth kills us, and we lose in the Champions League. But again, we probably should have gone on and won that. I think if we get by Atleti, I do think we win it. Um, so no, I don't think so. I think Stevie's frustration was this team's not good enough to win a league title and Chelsea are throwing money around and they are going to win lots and lots of league titles with Mo. There's nowhere Mo can go. That's a move up in terms of, um, the quality that'll be around him. There's no, there's no better team right now than Liverpool. There's a couple of teams on the same level, City. Bayern, PSG, on the same level, not better. So I don't think that's the case. I think Stevie, it was more about those teams are better than this one. I want to go play for the better team. With Mo, I think it gets done. I don't I don't really buy into any of the nonsense. I think what's going on right now is we're seeing all these stories about, well, Liverpool don't want to do it, that there's this doubt and that doubt. And then eventually the, it'll all work out as just spin. Well, FSG decided to do this. And they, they don't want to make it seem like they're too urgent to throw money around, but they're going to give Mo what he wants. They, I, I just think they'll give Mo what, they, what he wants. Uh, Baltimore Reds. If FSG do the same with Salah to what they did with Mookie Betts in Boston, do you see a way forward to them as owners? So for do, those that don't know... Mookie Betts is one of the five best players in baseball. And he was coming up for a contract extension. He was going to be in the ballpark of, you know, three to four hundred million over 10 to 12 years. Uh, the Bryce Harper deal. Um, Manny Machado got a similar type of deal. Mike Trout had got a similar type of deal. And that's the type of deal that, Mookie Betts was going to look for an elite level player defensively and offensively as a right fielder, probably the best in position at right field in baseball. So 
the Red Sox decided they didn't want to pay him this contract because the issue with those contracts is, yes, you tie the player in for a long time, but those back-end years, year 10, 11, 12, those are ugly years where the player's in his late 30s and no longer the same player they were signing the contract. Now, Mookie Betts was 27 so he would have been, you know, 37, 38, 39 coming into that contract. Those are the last years of those contracts. Now, they traded him to the Dodgers. He signed a contract to the Dodgers, 12 years, $365 million, which included a $65 million signing bonus. So the Dodgers will now would then pay him $65 million up front, and then $300 million across 12 years, which will take him to the age of 39. And a player like him, who's heavily reliant on his speed and athleticism, it's unlikely that he's going to be able to produce at the same level because he's not a huge power hitter. Like, he's not a, he's not a big guy at all. He's about 5'9", 5'10". He's quite slightly built. He's a great player, but he doesn't project as the type of guy who's going to be able to play at the very best level into his late 30s, the way some others do who are bigger, stronger, and more reliant on power and can just become designated hitters towards the end of their career in the American League, not in the National League. But So Mookie, the, the, the Red Sox looked at it and says, he's not going to be worth it in the last four or five years of that contract. We don't want to pay him. Let's move him on. The issue isn't that they got rid of him. The issue is that they traded him for little or nothing. Um, they got... Uh, Alex Vertago, Connor Wong, and Jeter Downs back in the in the deal. Jeter Downs is in the uh, minor league system. He's not a huge prospect. Uh, Connor Wong is a, is a, a backup infielder. He's not great. He doesn't really project to be much of of anything really in terms of being a starter. He's a, he's a decent player, but I think he's probably going to be a bench guy for them. Alex Verdugo is a decent player. Uh, as an outfielder, decent bat, decent arm. You know, he's not Mookie Betts, but he's not a bad player at all. Um, the issue is that they just didn't get enough. Like, we've seen big names in baseball go and huge holes of young prospects and things like that come back. The Red Sox didn't get that, and that's kind of why people got the hump, more so than letting Mookie Betts go, even though like they were devastated to lose Mookie because... Off the field, in the community, he'd been been so important to them. And he'd been within the organization for a long time. You know, like, it's not like he just kind of popped up out of nowhere. He'd been in the organization for a long time. The Red Sox drafted him in 2011. Um, they'd had him then for eight years. So he'd grown up in the Boston Red Sox organization. And... The fans have become very attached to him, and he is a, like he is a special player. There's no question. He won the MVP in 2017, 2018. He's a great player. But the bigger issue was they let him go and didn't get enough back. So with Salah, the, the question would be, well, like what's fair value? So if you sold him and you got, I don't know, a hundred and fifty million with one year left in this deal, I think you'd kind of look at that and say, okay. Okay, not bad. Now what? Now who do you go and get? And if Liverpool went and bought, just as examples, if they went and bought Federico Chiesa and um, 
Federico Chiesa and let's say Victor Simeon, right? Who's having a great season at the moment. Let's say Liverpool went and got those two. You put those two with Mane or Jota and you say, right, that's a new front three. And you'd be like, okay, fair. Okay, you've done a good job there. That's fair, whatever. If they sold him for 70 million, which is basically what they did with Mookie Betts, they took, you know, quite less than, quite a lot less than what he was worth. Then I think people, and you know, they replaced him, say, with Jared Bowen and let's just say uh, Kareem Adeyemi, who's really talented, but, you know, probably not quite ready to start for a club like Liverpool. They do that, you kind of look at it and say, you, you, you've gotten worse here. You, you, you've gotten worse. You haven't helped yourself. This is not a good deal. If they do that, there's no comeback. If they allow him to leave for nothing, there's no comeback. If if he goes, there is ways that it's okay, but not if if it's a bad deal. Um. He also asks, where's Klopp pounding the table for a contract for Mo like he did for Washed Up Henderson who disrespected the club? When he threw his agents, took his displeasure public. I, I, I don't know. I think that was shameful behavior from the club captain. Um, but, you know, not the first time from him. Um, known for his, you know, tantrums. And I don't know why Klopp isn't pounding him. Maybe he doesn't need to. Like I said, I, I think the deal will get done. I, I think a contract is done or close to done. I think it'll happen. I don't think Klopp needs to pound the table. I think the club desperately want to keep uh, Salah and give him a contract. I don't think the club wanted to give Henderson a contract. I think they were happy to see him leave in 2023 because he's finished. He's not a top-class player. He's never been a a top-class player. He's been a good player, and he doesn't look like that anymore. I think he'll be finished in 2023. I I don't think there's anything beyond that for him. I don't think he's going to be able to play until he's 34 or 35. I don't. I don't think his body's going to allow it. He's not technically good enough. He's not positionally good enough. He relies so much on his mobility, his athleticism. And without it, and it is failing him now, and he's only going to get more injury prone as he gets older, I just I think he'll be finished in 2023. And I, I think that's where the club looked at it as well. Yes, he helps us now. He'll help us next season. But come 2023, we don't want any part of that moving forward. Not at 200 grand a week, which is what he was asking for and eventually what he got. I think that's why Klopp went to bat, because he knew Henderson would become problematic. Um, Tom Hines, with our recent struggles in midfield on the left and right side roles, would a scenario where Robertson plays on the left in front of Costas at left back, similar to what Scotland did? Um, So Scotland have obviously played a 4-4-2 with Robbo on the left and Tierney as the left back. They've also played the 3-5-2 where Tierney plays the left side centre back and Robbo plays the left wing-back role. I mean, I do think there's certain games where it could work. You go 4-4-2, play Robertson one side, Mane the other, in front of Trent and Costas, um, and you sit in a little bit, and you look to spring on counter-attacks. I do think that would be something, a little wrinkle to throw in, maybe for European aways, against you know PSG, for example. Invite them on, and then try and beat them on the counter, where... They're going to struggle against teams that counter counterattack in numbers. Um, so I do think there's there's reason for that. Um, could Curtis Jones play on his left on the right side of midfield three? Yes, he I think he absolutely could. 
I think you play Curtis on the right and Naby on the left, get Curtis more involved in the attack. I do think it would work. Um, YNWA Foodie, what is your opinion on Premier League salaries? Which top five players do you feel are underpaid and which are overpaid? Um, overpaid, James Milner, 160 grand a week. The guy, the guy's well past his best. Uh, Jordan Henderson, 200 grand a week. Uh, Paul Pogba, 300 grand a week, farcical stuff. Uh, Jack Grealish, 300 grand a week, farcical stuff. Um, and I would go with Obama Yang. Um, they gave him that big new contract and it has not worked so far. He looked decent last time out, but or not last time out against Spurs, rather. But um, it hasn't worked since giving them that contract. So there's the five I'd go with. In terms of underpaid, uh, Mo Salah is underpaid. I would argue that Bruno Fernandes is underpaid, considering he carries that team by himself. I would say Alan St. Maximum is underpaid, considering he's got no help at all with the tune. Um, I don't know the details of his contract, but I would say Mikel Antonio is probably underpaid. He should be paid a lot more money, considering how, how good he is for West Ham. And a fifth one then, I will go and say... Hmm. Ezri Konza, who should be paid his wages and Tyron Mings's wages every single game for having to carry him up and down the pitch. Um, this year, uh, Mr. Ecker, this year Brentford had as good results. Leeds last season was basically that team, realistically speaking, the two-year syndrome, the year two syndrome for newly promoted teams. How could you avoid it? And as much as you like them, how many, te- how many seasons do you see Brentford having before going down? Or do you see them in the Premier League long term? I think they're smart enough run that they can stay in the league long term. The team I would look at for comparison, the club I would look at is Brighton. Um, very, very similar operations, Brighton and and um, and Brentford. So if Brighton can do it, I don't see why Brentford can't do it. Brentford also have more appeal in terms of recruitment being in London. The, the, the second season syndrome is definitely a real thing. We've seen it with so many clubs over the years. The key is the start. You've got to get a good start into the season because eventually teams get figured out. Every team gets figured out eventually. One way or another, a team will get figured out. So um, I do think there are ways to negate it, but you've got to look. Oftentimes when teams come up, what they do is they like to keep that consistency and have cohesion from last season's team. So you see a lot of players make that step up from the championship to the Premier League. And generally, they'll be fine for about two thirds of the season. And then they start to struggle at the end as teams start to figure out who's the weak link here. I think that second summer your recruitment is so important, far more important than your first summer. Your second summer's recruitment is so important and you've got to be more ruthless. You've got to identify the players who haven't fully adapted, who have struggled, who teams have picked at. Like, for example, last season, teams at the end of last year picked on Liam Cooper, 
and Luke Ayling, and Leeds didn't replace either of them this season, and Liam Cooper has been a disaster this season. Grant Hanley from Norwich is another example. Now, I know this is Norwich's first season up, but it's the second season up for most of these players, and they didn't learn. Grant Hanley's still in the team, and you've got to be more ruthless than that. So I think for Brentford, you know there's certain players that have already adapted, and certain players are already standing out. Ivan Tony, Brian Cuomo, I think Rico Henry's been great. Um, you look at the midfield, and, and some of them have done really, really well so far. Figure out who's not adapting. Figure out who this is just a step too far for. for. And next summer, you replace them. And you don't hang on to them out of loyalty. You have them as a squad player, that's fine. But you don't continue to run them out there because they helped you get to the dance. You've got to look for the next thing. Um, that's how you avoid second season syndrome. You, you don't allow yourself to get comfortable. Sheffield United let themselves get comfortable. And too many of their players, the likes of Basham, as an example, got badly found out in year two. Uh, Baldock badly found out in year two. That midfield got overrun in mid in in, sec, in the second year because teams figured them out. Too many championship players of quality. As an aside, Watford FC, we are delighted to announce the signing of Cameroonian defender Nicholas Nkulu. Welcome to Watford. So he had been a free agent since leaving Torino in the summer. Uh, probably best known for his years in France. He played for Monaco, uh, Marseille for quite a while, and then had a season at Lyon that didn't go very well. He's gone to Torino in 2007, and he's, 2017 rather. And he's done quite well, though, did lose his place in the team last season. Uh, a decent player, uh, an experienced leader. 75 caps for the Cameroon national team. Bit of a strange one that he retired in 2017. Him and Joel Matip uh, both retired there, which is a shame for them because at the time you could have made a case they were the two best Cameroonian players. Matip had retired in 2015 and Kulu in 2017. And, you know, you look at that Cameroon team, it's not exactly... Uh, inspiring the, the name certainly in defence don't inspire a lot uh, you've got some good players in midfield like Zambo but nothing nothing that stands out and again up front it can be of Leon is good but there's nobody great there um, I don't know I don't know I, I don't know how this will work for um, Watford he's certainly a, a body who will help defensively it's not like they've got good centre-backs anyway, so he will help them there. Uh, anyway, back to questions. Um, oh, yes, this is Mr. Ecker again. The EPL has the better teams in the world right now, but what is the most fun league to watch this season? And by the same token, what's the most fun team you've watched this season? Bayer Leverkusen, the most fun team I've watched this season. Really liking them under Gerardo Sione. I would say the most fun league to watch. Um, right now, it actually it's probably the championship. Uh, the Premier League is is there thereabouts, but the championship's always fun. Um, I haven't really watched a bunch of Portuguese stuff this year. Watched a bit last year because I was quite interested in that sporting team. France France is always interesting and fun because you, there's always quality young players that you can spot and then track as they develop and see where they end up. Uh, the Bundesliga is the same. The Bundesliga maybe is the most fun right now um, because 
Bellingham is incredible. Verts is so much fun. And Kunku's playing out of his skin at, at Leipzig. Bayern have got this near perfect team. Um, yeah, the Bundesliga is probably the most fun at the moment. The Premier League and the Championship, though, are both really entertaining. Um, IT, oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, fact 1977. Which teams, apart from the big six, have the best three year window to break into the top five? Uh, Aston Villa. Aston Villa have the money, the means, and the ambition to do it. Um, Everton have the money if if things get back on track, although with the stadium coming, maybe not. Um, I mean, Leicester are there anyway. I don't think West Ham can do it. Newcastle, with, with what's about to happen, they've got to be considered. I'll say, look, Leicester are already there and, and throw in Villa, throw in Newcastle. I think that's probably probably it. Uh, ITJ, if the Newcastle takeover goes through before the January window, who do you see as the ideal manager for the next stage of life at the Toon? And what players do you think they will need and target in the January window? So, as I said earlier, I actually, I think you buy a couple of players that just get you safety this year. And I think you you appoint a manager to get you safety this year. Graham Jones or somebody. Just get you through the end of the season. In that interim period, build the club. Get the right people in place before you start bearing down on building a team. Build the club. Make sure that the manager and the players are walking into an optimum situation with the right people in the right areas. But, I mean, the manager you go for is Antonio Conte. You you go to him now and you say, look, we want you next summer. We will pay you now to take this season off, take over for us next season, so you don't take another job in the meantime. You enjoy your season off. Come and, come and hang out if you want. But you take this season off and you are ours next summer moving forward. Five years, long-term plan. We're going to get all the best people in place. We're going to find the right director of football. We're going to find the right recruitment people. And we are going to build something special. Now, you also would need to say to them, look, this is not going to be one of those things where you sign players who are 34, 35, because you think you can get two or three good games out of them. We're going to build something here. You're not coming in under pressure to win straight away. You're coming in under pressure to win a sustainable winner. If he says no to that, you thank him for his time, you move on. He may well. He, he may well be just be too stuck in his ways and want to just win everything straight away. And if he does, that's that's fine. You move on. You go and you approach an Eric Ten Hag. You approach somebody that you can bring in and build long-term with. But you don't make any panic moves in January. You go and you buy... One or two players who can get you survival. Go and get a decent centre-back for starters. Someone that can be kind of... Uh, even if it's just a short-term fix. Look, if you can find someone that you think will be a long-term piece, great. But if you can't, get a short-term fix at centre-back. Get some temporary goals up front. And get yourself through to the end of the season. And at that point, then, you start to build your team. Because um, remember as well, in January... Everyone knows your new money. 
So you're going to find that the centre-back, who right now would cost you 15 million, will cost you 30. Teams will try and, and rinse you early on. And you've got to set a marker down. One of the things you've got to give City credit for is the early days, they got rinsed a few times. Then they put the foot down. So this isn't going to happen to us anymore. They got really hard line with the fees that they're willing to pay. Now, they overpaid for Grealish, but that was a buyout clause. And Pep was desperate to get him. But you look at all the other signings, they have largely stuck within a very specific frame of like you know this kind of price to this kind of price they haven't gone outside it they haven't gone above or below they've just stuck to this is what we're comfortable with and we would rather buy 10 players for 60 million than six players for 100 million um isaac gilding i've heard a few questions and read articles elsewhere about how gerard would have worked in the club team going the other way do you think stevie would have cut it in the better teams of the 70s and 80s, particularly interested to hear you compare him with Sines. I think he would have played on the right side of a four-man midfield for those Liverpool teams in the position occupied by the likes of Jimmy Case, uh, by the likes of Ray Houghton. I think that would have been his role in those teams. Yes, he absolutely could have played in them. Yes, he would have starred in them, but he wouldn't have played in central midfield. Um, it would have been a bit of a waste of him to play him in central midfield, to be honest, because the physical side of things, I think, he would have struggled with, not not in terms of being able to give and take, but just we know the injuries he suffered in his career. That's going to happen regardless of era. And I think it would have been worse in those years on bogs of pitches. I, I would have played him on the right. I think that's where he would have played for, for Paisley and Shanks. On the right-hand side, imagine his crossing ability with the likes of a Toshak up front. Or, you know, before that with a Roger Hunt or, you know, those guys in the 60s, Hunt and, and St. John, um, Keegan and Toshak, and then onwards to to Rush, Dogleash, Aldridge, Dogleash, uh, Aldridge, Walsh, Rush and David Speedy, you know, Rush and Houghton, uh, Rush and Beardsley rather, those type of players. There was always one in the air that was good, Gerard crossing from the right incredible and in the 60 in the 70s rather he would have had steve highway in the opposite wing in the 80s john barnes it would have been incredible uh in terms of comparing with roy with graham there's no real point sunes was a better central midfielder substantially so uh sunes more similar to roy Keane, but a better passing version sunes was like a cross between roy Keane and pep guardiola it's what he was he had the hardness and defensive side the physicality of Keane. He had the passing ability of Guardiola. He was better than both. Um, and I, I think he's the best midfielder the club's ever had. Uh, second question. In the post-match for the City game, you mentioned Phil Foden's haircut. It's awful. looks like the unholy love child of a naughty chav and a medieval monk. What is the worst haircut we've seen in the Premier League? Um... Oh, the Jason Lee pine, pineapple has got to be up there. It's got to be in strong consideration. Uh, the Attilio Lombardo kind of monks thing, you know, shave your head, son. You're going bald, shave your head. Uh, he did, obviously, eventually. Um, oh, Jason Lee's hard to beat. Some of the boys that bleached their hair back in the 90s, Dominic Matteo, Robbie Fowler, looked a bit ridiculous. Uh, Foden's looked ridiculous when he bleached his. But I think Foden's a strong contender. That is a shocker of a haircut. You're a professional footballer earning good money. Go and get yourself a... Stop going to the same barber you've been going to since you were four years old because your dad went to him. You know, you've come up in the world. There's no reason to be going to that man who can't cut hair, puts a bowl on your head 
and clips around and then shaves up the side until it meets the bowl. Go to a real barber. That's just, a, it's an abomination. And his name is Phil Philip Walter Foden. He was born in 2000. Who calls their child Walter in 2000? Philip was bad enough. Walter, absolutely ridiculous. Uh, Nick Sum, here's an interesting one for you. If Carius doesn't have that performance in the Champions League final, we might not have won Alisson. Would we still have won the league in Champions League without Alisson in goal? Um, I would say no. But then again, if Carius doesn't have that performance, do Liverpool win the Champions League in 2018? Possibly not. Definitely. But possibly. I mean, they were outplayed in midfield in that game. Henderson and Milner were atrocious. Uh, Cruz and Modric at the run of the park. But defensively, they were fairly strong. In attack, they caused Milan problems. So maybe they win that Champions League. Um, but I don't think they win the league title. No, I, I don't think they're as good the following seasons as, as they are without, without Alisson. Um, if English clubs weren't banned from Europe in the 80s, how well would the mid-80s Everton team perform in England? Could they have won, in, in Europe rather, could they have won the European Cup? I, I think so. I do think so. English football was at such a high level. Um, you look at Nottingham Forest winning it, Aston Villa winning it, Liverpool obviously dominating and winning it four times. I think I think Everton could have won the European Cup. Now, what I will say is, it's not like it's not like there were no other good teams. There were strong teams coming from Europe. That, that Juventus team that Liverpool played in the two thousand uh, outside the two thousand in the nineteen eighty five uh, Champions League final was a really really good team. So. There's no guarantee that, you know, Everton would have gone on and won it. You look at Stoya Bucharest won it in 86 and Porto in 87. And they're the two that you'd look at and say, oh, and PSV Eindhoven. So, yeah, I mean, there is a three-year window there that maybe could have been exploited. But look at the teams that, that finished in the, losing the final. Barcelona, Bayern Munich. And then Benfica obviously weren't, weren't the best. But, yeah, I mean... I do think they could have won it. There's a three-year gap there where the teams that win it aren't exactly the best of the best. You know, they were great those seasons, no question, and deserved to win their European Cups. Stoya and PSV both won them on penalties that year. Um, by 88, you know, uh, Saki's Milan had appeared, and then that was kind of game over for everybody for a couple of years. Um, but yeah, I mean, in that window... Everton, if Everton had gone into the Champions League in the European Cup as it was in, in 85-86, I do think they win the league. I do think they win it. I do. I think they win it. I think Liverpool win it the following year and uh, and maybe the year after that as well. But um, yeah, I do think Everton could have won it. I think it's a shame. Um, who do you think will be the next sporting director and manager? Do you be able, think they'll be able to track top names? So I mentioned the top names thing earlier on. And it's going to be difficult. Like, it's going to take time to attract top name players. But I think you've you've just got to put your the sporting director one is huge. Get you have to get the right guy in. But they've got it. It's got to be a process, not just a, a, a you know smash and grab. You can't just start throwing your arms out and bringing back whatever's come in for you. Um, you've got to find the right players or the the right people for those roles you've got to have a proper search 
for each and every position and make sure you're getting the very best candidate in every role. You've got the money. No one's going to turn you down. Players might, but people in those roles generally won't. If I was to pick one, as a sporting director, maybe a level above a sporting director, what I would do, I would go to Inter Milan, I would go to Beppe Maratta, and I would say, look, what do you want to come and take this job? Because this is the guy who was the architect of Juventus's nine years of dominance. He was the architect of Inter Milan's resurgence. This is the guy. This is the best in the business. In terms of sporting director then below him, I mean, we, if you're looking in, the, in England, I, I wouldn't look beyond Michael Edwards. I mean, if he's willing to leave Liverpool in the summer, I would very much consider him. But if you're just looking for a sporting director or someone who maybe works as, say, say you bring in Maratha as president of, of football operations, okay? He works over the football side of the club. And then you put heads of departments in. So you put in your head of medicine, head of analytics, head of academy, head of recruitment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if you want a head of recruitment who just handles recruitment and doesn't deal with anything else, I think Luis Campos. He's out of work. He was the, he's the guy who went and built the Monaco team that beat PSG. He built the Lille team that beat PSG. I think if you put Morata and Campos together... I, I just don't see how you do better than that. I think Beppe Morata and Luis Campos to run Morata to run the football side of things, to oversee the football side of things. Your general manager, president of football operations, whatever you want to call them, and then as head of recruitment, Luis Campos. Scouting and recruitment is probably what you you probably best describe it as head of scouting and recruitment. He's your guy. That's that's where I would look. Personally, um, I don't think you're going to do better than those two. Um, Tom James just watched a compilation of Yaya Toure. Currently, who's the closest to a prime Yaya who's got the potential? I think Sergei Milinkovic-Savage is the closest thing in the game right now to prime Yaya. Similar type of build. Incredibly hard to stop. Doesn't have Yaya's physicality in terms of that burst of pace Yaya had to get away from people. But he's just, when he picks the ball up and starts moving at people, they just bounce off him. He's got, I would say, a higher level of technique than Yaya. Um, but maybe maybe doesn't just have that. Yaya had this ability to just conjure things that maybe Sergey doesn't quite have. It's there at times. I think they both have that on-off switch where they can float through games and then just decide, I'm just going to win the game now because I'm bored here and just do something outlandish. So I would say Sergey is the closest thing to Prime Yaya. Um, Steve P, the other side of Newcastle coin while you're at it, who would be the worst manager they could appoint to blow all the cash, get bored, sell up and go home or close to that Mourinho? Mourinho would be the worst appointment they could make right now. He's a big, fancy name. And yeah, things are going fine at Roma. But if you want a guy who can come in and cause destruction, I think Mourinho is probably the worst way they could go. Um, Brian X, where would you place 
Liverpool, City, Arsenal, Manchester United and Chelsea's best ever teams in a top five. So City's best ever team is the 18-19 team. Sorry, the 17-18 team. Chelsea's best ever team is, I think, Mourinho's first team. Um, Arsenal's is the Invincibles. Liverpool's is 18-19. And United's is... It's hard not to say the treble winning team, but that, that team with the Cristiano, Berbatov, Tevez, Rooney kind of front four was really, really special. They weren't great in midfield, though. They're good defence. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know what... The, look, I, I will never not be of the opinion that a team that goes unbeaten through the league isn't the best team that the league is seen. And you can say, yes, but they drew all these games, and that's fine. But they did it against a great United team, a good Liverpool team, a Chelsea team that was spending a lot of money. I think that Arsenal team is... I, I, I'm i still going to put them number one. I'm going to put City number two, 17-18. But... United is number five because you look at their league tables, they, they they never got the points that the others did. So Klopp's 18-19 versus Mourinho's probably 05-06 team. Was it 05-06? Which year did they have the ridiculously good defensive record? Um... The first year. Yeah, the first year. Eight draws, one defeat, 72 scored, 15 conceded. Just ran away with it with the league. Um 95 points. That that team which won the league and got knocked out in the Champions League semi-final or the Liverpool team that won the Champions League and lost the title by a point only lost once all season. I think I would go for the Liverpool team. 97 points to 95. Um, I think I would go with that Liverpool team. And Chelsea, I mean, Chelsea were top from... November on. Chelsea went top on the 6th of November and then ran away with the league from there. Liverpool had a battle with City. Um, I, I'll say City's unbeaten. No, sorry. Arsenal's unbeaten team. And that's just me being me. But I, I'm going to st stick with that. City, Centurions. Liverpool in 18-19. Chelsea in 0 4 5 and then United's, whichever United team you want to pick, pick either the the, the late noughties team or that late nineties team, pick whichever one. I'm going to put them fifth. Um, yeah, KR ninety nine points out that Arsenal's Invincibles wouldn't have won the league in seventeen eighteen. 18, 19, or 19, 20, and given they only got 91 points. That's fair. But, you know, then you can look at any United team and say they wouldn't have won the league at any of those years. And 
like I said, I think the Premier League was stronger in 03 or 04 than it has been at any point really in the 2010s. I think we've got we've had one or two great teams each year. Um, some years no great teams, and that's kind of an issue. But I just don't think the depth has always been as good. The middle of the table has been a bit softer. Um, oh, this is a great chat. So Flatsy, the, the Ferguson Wenger thing that I spoke about yesterday could be done as the like the best of enemies for 30, 30 for 30, like the Celtics-Lakers one was done. And that was brilliant about the Celtics and Lakers in the 80s. Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, James Worthy in the Lakers. Then you had Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, um, Robert Parrish, Dennis Johnson, Danny Ainge, and that Celtics team. And they just dominated the decade. So, yeah, that would be brilliant. Um, who's your two World Elevens that would face you? Do you know I'll do that one tomorrow where I'll have a bit more time. I'm going to... We're, we've gone really late and I'm late putting this out. So I'm actually going to save the rest of these questions for tomorrow uh, because there's no games this weekend. So I might as well have something for tomorrow. So um, Flatsy, Chris Colby, Martin Steen, Keepy Uppy, Eddie Gibbs and Sydney. I will answer all of your questions tomorrow if that's okay. Uh, thank you all as always for listening folks sorry we have run long and we are late coming out but we had other stuff to do as well with with uh, anfield index so uh see you tomorrow bye-bye Podcast Network.